Hello friends, how's it going? My name is Matt Barr and you're listening to the Looking Sideways Action Sports Podcast. It's a show where I try and cover the most fascinating stories in action sports and other related endeavours. Thanks for tuning into this episode. I hope you enjoy it. It's 196 this one. 200 is getting close. Um, still not decided what I'm going to do, but I'll keep you posted. And we are in definite other related endeavours territory. And we're in life for territory because I've got my friend James Joyner on the show this week. James is a journalist, a podcaster, a photographer, a creative, and a bit of a general all-round legend who I've been meaning to get on the show for a while. Um, We met virtually. We've never met in real life. This was about three or four years ago when he invited me to be a guest on the podcast he was running at the time for 1% for the planet. And we hit it right off while we were doing that and we stayed in touch. James has been a massive supporter of Looking Sideways and my work generally. He's written about the podcast for Monster Children. He's championed the book, Looking Sideways, Volume 1. And he's generally just been a legend and the type of positively affirming friend any creative needs if they're going to stay sane. That is a thing. Check out The Artist Way um, if you wonder what that's all about. But basically, the idea is that you need people that are going to support you rather than fire in with the... uh, you know, the harsh feedback. There's a time and a place for harsh feedback, obviously, but, you know, equally there's a time and a place for affirming your friends when they're doing something creative. And James has definitely been doing that for me over the last three or four years. And he's also got a brilliant story himself. It's the type of circuitous path through life that'll be all too familiar to listeners of the podcast and readers of my newsletter. Like I say, he's a lifer extraordinaire. And he tells his tale, as you can hear, with real candor and humour. I don't mind saying I enjoyed this conversation immensely. It's always really fun for me when I can go into these without doing any preparation and just see what rambling direction the conversation takes. And this one definitely goes all over the place and is, if you ask me, all the better for it. Um, So yeah, that's kind of it for the intro. I'm just going to crack on. Thanks to James for coming on the show and for being such a staunch supporter of Looking Sideways. Looking forward to finally meeting you when we make it over to California for round two in 2023, mate. In the meantime, here's me and James. Enjoy. Is the mic super hot? Um, This is a... We just moved into a new spot, and this is like literally the first time I've sat down in my office and set up the mic. So, uh, if it sounds super hot, let me know. I can adjust it a little bit. Seems good, actually. Right. Yeah, as long as you're not getting every breath I take. That was happening earlier. I was like, oh man, it's like an ASMR nightmare. <laughs> no, you're all good, man. You're awesome. all good. How are you? I'm fucking. I'm good. It's been a it's been a wild year, but I'm good, man. How about yourself? Uh, yeah, pretty good. Same, same. Yeah. Busy busy year um yeah i keep thinking like the older i get the mellower life is gonna get and that's just doesn't seem to be the way it works um it's like the crazier it gets and hey elon musk bought twitter so at least we're down a social network yeah i mean i did leave twitter maybe a year ago um i i i mentioned this in a like a newsletter that i did the other day like i just found myself like having arguments in my head with people on twitter <laughs> I mean, that's my baseline, just anyways, arguments with people in my head, people I see walking down the street, people with flags in their trucks. Like, yeah, it's just but kinda... I, was, I was just like, that, that can't be good, can it? That, that can't be a good, <laughs> that can't be a good thing. So I got rid the of it. The answer is no, it can't be good. Because I quite liked it at first. I mean, I think I joined it in January 2009, 
Like, wow. um, and the reason I remember that is because I was, I did a press trip to New York. Red Bull held this like um, snowboarding competition on, I guess, like opposite the like the Manhattan side of the Williamsburg Bridge. What's that? What would that be called? What part of Manhattan would that be called? Uh, so Soho. I think maybe yeah it was like right opposite that old there was like a sugar factory I remember which is now gone the Domino's factory yeah I forget the name of that I should know this because I lived there up and on for years but I don't yeah so I was (laughs) I was over there for that and I remember that was the first time I used Twitter so I was like so I was all like oh I'm flying to New York and I'm like tweeting about it um and (laughs) I quite I quite liked it back then because you know for me it was like politics and it was kind of a bit friendlier back then um yeah. like football like you know soccer i think the world was friendlier back then yeah i felt like uh, it so i quite i quite liked it views. yeah and then New and then it just it, it just seemed to get more and more you know like you say like as the world since seems to have become it just seemed to get more and more angry um so after a while i just was like you know what I, like why why am i doing this it's the same reason i left facebook you know it's just like I, I don't need this in my head like at all yeah is this, I just made an adjustment on my mic. Is this a little better or can you hear me? It's all good, well? man. I can hear you fine. Okay, yeah. cool. Great. Yeah, all yeah, right. yeah. yeah. Um, I just want to be conscious of being the guy with like the weird zoom echo in the background. It's like the worst. No, nah, you're all good. You're all, all good. Right, cool. No, it sounds uh, sounds good to me. Yeah, so Twitter is, so I, th- I think I, I got on it. I don't even know when. I think I just like, I think I just had some anniversary pop up on there, but I just never used it. And then during the Boston bombing, I covered that, uh, I think for Esquire. And so... I had been in Boston like until an hour before the bombing happened and then drove back down to Cape Cod where I was living at the time. And that happened and was like, oh shit. And that was the first time I ever used Twitter as like a tool, you know, like you could look at real time, like you could kind of geofence, look at real time posts. And I was like, oh, this is really, really useful and interesting and, and did that. And then it was like something we had to have, you know, in a career in journalism, you promote your stories through it. Like, I'm, if I remember correctly, at the Daily Beast, we were like required to tweet a certain amount of like promotional things, which is I get. Um, and then since leaving journalism, I, I just it's something that I go in every now and then. I think just to make sure that like my internal rage meter is like at ten. Um, <laughs> it's good for that. Or, yeah, or like, and it's funny. Like I remember in like 2014 or 15, like journalist friends, like it was like it's like a playground, right? Like you would see people post a story, people would hate on it. We'd all jump on that person and everything like this isn't a healthy behavior. And like, it's just, this is just a creating a new baseline of terribleness. And that, yeah, we saw how it was weaponized during the election. And now it's just a dumpster. Yeah. I mean, watching like sport is great. I think like, obviously apart from when people start being dicks, but you know, generally that real time conversation, like people reacting mm-hmm. together to something that's happening. I quite, I still quite like that part of it. Um, yeah. But the rest of it can do one. But, you know, anyway, so Elon Musk has taken over. Like what, what could possibly go wrong? <laughs> right. I mean, I feel like he's conquered space, right? Like what's next? He's got to go for the Twitter sphere. Like I think in the great billionaire dick measuring contest, if you don't have a social media network in a spaceship, like you're yeah. left behind. So, um, (laughs) although then you've got guys like Peter Thiel who's like, I'm just quietly colonizing New Zealand. So don't worry about it. It's fine. Yeah. Uh, Or like, or shutting down media outlets that he disagrees with or, yeah. I mean, you know, and they need a, they need a hobby. These people, you need something to do. Like in the afternoon, I like to come home, have a glass of wine and like 
you know, slappy curbs with my skateboards. They come home and buy media outlets, shut it down and put a bunch of people out of jobs and then buy a bunch of buildings and raise the rent. Or as has happening here in my uh, newfound hometown of Sonoma, California, the billionaires, the far right Christian billionaires move in, um, buy a bunch of buildings in the downtown area and then don't develop them. They just leave them empty with the uh, the game plan of being like, look at this liberal haven. It's, you know, it's trash because no one wants to live here. I'm like, well, it's because you bought everything and aren't like you're just shutting it down. But cool play, wow. I guess. Yeah. Right. Right. So, um, so, you, so you're in Sonoma County, that's how you say, which is, as you said to me on a message last night, uh, wine country. Yes. Right. Yeah. Um, so where, where, I don't know where, where is where is that? Give me. I'm not. I'm not massive. Is that is that north Northern California? Yeah, 45 minutes north of San Francisco. Um, okay. So we're, right. it's you know it's it's you would think it would be um, a little more urban than it is, but it's it's really agricultural country. You know, it's um, it's wine. It's um, I mean, it's just farmland, farmland and, and hills and. Um, I want to make a joke about wildfires, but I don't think that's a joking matter now that I live here. So, um, <laughs> and, um, you know, much like Cape Cod, where I come from, um, a, uh, a baseline of like older rich white people, which is, you know, I don't know. I don't know what to say, but I don't know why I keep winding up in these places because I am, I guess I'm older and I'm, I'm white, but I'm not rich. And I, I don't know. Um, well, have, how come you've moved there though? Because you, you, since we've known each other, you've always been. I mean, you're from the East Coast. You've always lived East Coast. Well, yeah, I, I imagine you've lived all over the place. But I, I have always associated with with East. So what what's with this? Move? I still associate myself with the East Coast. I, I don't think. Uh, I think in my head, this is still just a a really extended work trip or something. Um, right. You know, my daughter went to UC Santa Cruz. Um, a lot of the work that I've been doing is based out here. Uh, my, I do a lot of work with my best friend's band. Um, they're based in Portland. Um, I'm the director of marketing at the moment for a winery in Washington, um, which is very much not California, but, you know, it rains a lot in Seattle. So, um, yeah. <laughs> and, you know, we tried... The house that we were living in, we didn't own on Cape Cod. Um, the COVID, like everywhere, for whatever reason, doubled the cost of homes in our in our neighborhood. Like there was this strange phenomenon where uh, a house during COVID would get listed and it would sell for like double the asking price in cash, and it was just this like flight from the cities, you know, and everyone wanted yeah to happened over here as well. Yeah. And so the dream of owning a home went from like, yeah, probably maybe someday to fuck, I guess not, you know, um, and the world doesn't need another van lifer. So uh, we were looking to be on the West Coast for a little bit just to spread our wings and be close to our daughter and be close to some of the work that's out here. Um, and a friend had a place in Santa Rosa that became available um, and finding a place on the Internet. Um, sight unseen is very complicated. There's a lot of scammers in the Craigslist world and, uh, this just seemed easy. So we did it and, uh, moved there. We were there for six months and then, um, just got a spot in Sonoma, which is, uh, it's, I mean, it's beautiful. I'm looking out at grapes in a palm tree, which is very surreal, but I, I do think, you know, in my heart, I identify as an East coaster and, and I don't think. Um, anyone would be surprised to learn that my return is imminent. Like, <laughs> really? it's definitely, oh yeah. I mean, California is wonderful and the people here are amazing. Like everything about it is, is fantastic. But I think, I think when you grow up somewhere like new England, um, 
it's just, it's in your blood. Like you can't, you can't help it. You know, I'm yeah. very much for everything that's good and bad about it. Like I am very much of that place in Cape Cod in particular, you know? So it's, well, I have my frustrations with it culturally from time to time as you do anywhere. And I'm sure it does with me. Um, it's hard to imagine, you know, growing all somewhere else. So, yeah. Um, like how like over here, you know, you, you, you kind of have the idea of the, the sort of cultural differences between the East and West coast and, and it being a bit of a thing. And I, and, and just as an aside, I discovered the phrase uh, "flyover country recently, which <laughs> absolutely fascinated me. I was like, I just trigger word. I think now uh, I, I was, I was, I was like, that is so, <laughs> that's pretty derogatory. And, it's derogatory, you know, but have you ever driven across the country in the United States? No, but that's what I mean. Yeah. It's like it's kind of perfect, but also derogatory. So it refers, if I'm right, like to the bit in between the West and the East Coast, right? It's just like the bit yeah. you fly over. And that, it, it that... can be a derogatory term. My wife is from Rhinelander, Wisconsin. Um, so like I I have a love for the middle of this country. Yeah. I also definitely have used that term. Um, but as someone who because of the nature of what I do literally drives cross country a few times a year. Um, yeah. There are times in the middle of Nebraska where there's just nothing in any direction. And when I say nothing in any direction, I mean, you are staring at just, especially at night, it's just dark with a yellow line and there's nothing. You're like, yeah. fuck, I wish I'd flown over this country, you know? Yeah. Um, <laughs> it's kind of but, a phrase that you just think must like must symbolize like the, you know the liberal elite like the, the snarky oh 100 percent. yeah yeah <laughs> and and that's you know i try to be conscious of using that i think i think in today's society we all try to be hyper conscious of of what we say um either because people don't want to get canceled or just because you're not an asshole and uh um, yeah. and we're learning to not be assholes and it's you know it's a it's a curve but um it is I've definitely said it and it definitely probably sounds very liberal elite of me, but I also have a center of the country. I thought it's hilarious. (laughs) What a a phrase that is. But like for you then, so you, that cultural difference between East and West is, is a real thing. Like, Oh, for sure. I mean, you're getting a a nosebleed because you spent too long on the West coast (laughs) at this point. Well, I mean, for one thing, I like seasons, you know? So, um, but also, there's, I think the number one difference in, in California is very much its own country. I think we're about to become the third or fourth largest economy in the world. Um, California is its own universe, right? So you almost can't, if you say West Coast, people assume you mean California, like Oregon and Washington are kind of their own vibe. Um, but at least among the people that, that I've come into contact with and, and the reports that I've heard from fellow New England or East Coast expats, the big difference is that on the West Coast, um, there's one, they don't understand sarcasm, which I have seen to be true based on the looks that I've gotten from people when I, I said I, things sarcastically. I've <laughs> noticed that when I've been over there as well. Well, I mean, I don't even know if it's like not even understanding sarcasm. It's just like, I mean, I'm, I'm, I'm British, obviously. So that's the right. problem. And so, yeah, I think the dryness <laughs> the starts there that's, that's and it dissipates <laughs> as you move, you know, so by the time you get to Boston from London, like it's gone from like very dry straight face to like kind of snarky sarcasm. And by the time you get to the West coast, it's, there's this strange, and, and I'm not saying, I hope I'm going to offend everybody, but uh, it's what I do. I don't mean to, Um, you know, the, the West coast has this, it's known for, you know, uh, a level of plastic niceness, like faux niceness. Um, 
which you know at a certain level is nice at least people are being congenial to each other in a world where they're just not always but or maybe maybe fake niceness is the wrong word i'm, I'm gonna go with i i, I, think, I mean I, I was gonna use the word earnestness like earnestness you know, yeah you, you, i think like, east coast East Coast, you're going to know where you stand with somebody. If you meet somebody in, in Boston or New York, like you immediately know where you stand which and I where think you're for, at. Which I think for Europeans, and well, actually, I'm not going to speak for Europeans, obviously, because they all think we're fucking weirdos right now, quite rightly. But um, I think for Brits, <laughs> that, 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 that's, that's kind of ha- that's kind of handy. Because that, that's how yeah. it is over here. You know, you, it's like instant value judgments, obviously riven with the class system. So you just instantly sure. cite size somebody up and it's like okay that's who you are and this is who i am where do we meet but i think friends that i know that have moved to california they really struggle with with that side of it like because yeah because like you're talking about it's just socially it's it can be quite impenetrable it can be quite like what what, if you remove those reference points that we're talking about and there's just a sheen of like whatever you want to call it like i think you said faux politeness i said earnestness that thing that we're talking (laughs) about yeah like it, it's it's quite disorientating i think and and i you realize often, that in the comments here sorry go ahead i didn't mean to interrupt well go i was ahead. just gonna say like I, i've just often thought like could i actually live here i don't know i don't know if i could really <laughs> it's a question i ask myself every day um <laughs> the, you know and, and i i was gonna say i realized that in the comments of this podcast we're gonna get crucified for being like maybe we're just polite and you guys are a couple of jerks and that's entirely possible. I have long accepted that I'm probably a jerk. Got called a jerk yesterday. Um, <laughs> to your face? No, online. Um, nah, it doesn't count. No, but you know, I, <laughs> I, 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 I was a bit like it's a fair point to be honest. Kind of, kind <laughs> I mean, of, kind of was. Hey man, I'm 47 years old. I definitely am capable of owning it at this point. I can be a dick. I don't mean to. Yeah. Be- a quote I really liked in, do you know Charles Frazier? Do you know that, that writer? Did Cold Mountain? Know that book? Oh, yeah. Yep. Yeah. He, I read another one of his called Verena recently, and there's a line in it which I really liked, which was something like, as you get older, you stop pretending to not be the person you've always been. Something like that, anyway. <laughs> I'm, I'm paraphrasing. And yeah. I was like, yeah, that, that, <laughs> that's, 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 I think happening. you just run out of energy to do it. You're like, oh my God. I look at, yeah, because you spend, you spend your 20s like projecting don't you yeah and i an idea of who you want to be and then, yeah <laughs> and then I just, and then and, then, and after that it's like because i remember like i've got friends i, I spent my 20s being a piece of shit but yeah sorry go on <laughs> well i've got friends who like you know a friend i interviewed the other day for this podcast a guy called chris who like we, we always really admired is like how how like himself that he was you know and when and i had quite a few friends like that i think we well, you've all got friends we've all got friends like that and looking back i think that's kind of what it was like he's just always unapolog- unapologetically been himself and never made any attempt to you know hide that think, which and it's and it's, it's it is admirable isn't it really you know i think we all have those friends and if you look back to like the way you were as a teenager or like in your 20s I think those people that were capable of doing that are the ones that we all flock to, you know? Yeah, um, I, I totally agree. Yeah. And even the culturally, like in, in music or skateboarding or, or snowboarding or mountain biking, like any of those people who are just, be, I mean, look at Mark Gonzalez. That guy's yeah. never been anything but Mark Gonzalez and he's the fucking king. So Yeah, yeah. Authenticity, um, I believe they call it. Yeah, I believe yeah. they do. And, you know, yeah. now before it was a marketing, I mean, it was probably a marketing buzzword then, but... 
before we were all so blatantly test subjects of our own marketing campaigns, um, I think, or we were all our own brands. Is that what we've become? Uh, <laughs> it's, you know, it's funny. I want to hate on that. And part of me is also like, well, it's how I make a living. So yeah. um, it's, it's interesting. Um, and I wonder now if it's possible I wonder what that culture is like now as, as a teenager, a person in their early twenties, if there is that like authentic weirdo or authentic person that everyone kind of gravitates to just doing their own thing. And I wonder if it's possible to be that person and still exist on social media. Well, there's actually like a very interesting test case of that in Britain right now. Have you ever heard of a guy called Francis Bourgeois? So he, I have, but I can't place why. So he's like a he's he's well, he's a fully fully fledged celebrity now. Like in, in in like he's got TV shows. He's got and he was like a guy. He's a train spotter. Um, do you know what a train spotter is? I saw the so, movie. You, you, well, so train train. <laughs> I can't believe this is where this podcast is going. So train spotting. <laughs> train spotting is like is a ve- I mean, the reason I asked if you knew what it was is because it's a very very I I would always mention very British thing. And it's basically men who go and like look at trains and and like trains in trains in England. Like as they go by? Yeah. And that it that like That's amazing. Trains in, in the UK are not sexy. You know, it's not like it's 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 not like it's not like it's there's no romance to that. I mean they're literally like on a grimy train platform with notebooks i mean i don't know how you're like romanticizing the trains in the united states which is just laden with coal and covered in graffiti uh, but you know like i guess for you know jack kerouac jumping on the train going to the west coast you know you know like but but i mean so so that's what train spotting is and and then and I, I, I think there's a scene in the book, the Evan Welsh <laughs> book, that's some gag about train spotting, which is why he called it train spotting. Anyway, right. So that that's what train spotting is. Francis Bourgeois is about 24 and he he's a train spotter and he basically tied a GoPro to his forehead and <laughs> and films himself train spotting. And he's a, I mean, to say he's gone viral and like become is like check it out so he's on tiktok and (laughs) and he's and he's i'm not sure i think it was tiktok that he went viral on now he's got tv shows and and basically like (coughs) what's interesting is because because i saw it and i was like this can't be real like this is this has got to be a a, like a this has got to be an act like because it but then i was like but maybe it's so fucking weird that it's it's just not an act you know like and anyway it turns out that that like it is a guy it's not his real name obviously right like because he's become so famous that people have started digging into it and like and his whole thing is like look you know yeah when i was younger i tried to be cool and now i'm and now like i've accepted i'm into train spotting (laughs) and like this is this is what i'm into but he's got like he's he's got deals with prada like Cause he's like, he's quite a good looking lad. Oh, uh, like nice. And, There's um, some skateboard influencers like that where they have like Prada skateboards and like Balenciaga sneakers, but, and they're like Instagram famous, but that's it. It's such a strange world. But wait, like, I want to go back to this just... train spotting thing for a second, because this is intriguing to me. One of my, one of my best friends, Nigel, um, I used to walk my dog with him every morning on Cape Cod, British dude, builds Land Rovers in his garage out of spare parts. Um, very much can picture him being a train spotter and you saying that like i actually think that and i'm i'm you know 80 percent british by by origin or whatever so 
I, when, as you explained that to me, like part of me wants to laugh at him. He was like, I'd probably do that. I mean, it's not as well, weird as gurning. I mean, like I say, well, it, but it's kind of, it's, you know, it's one of those uniquely British things like gurning, like fucking cheese rolling. Like, you know, it's the one best. of the, it's one of, it's one of these things. And, but, to say it's been unfashionable, like, is, you know, like it, cause it's literally associated with men with like carrier bags, like in, mm-hmm. you know, in trench coats, like, like, so for him to come along and like, You're describing the, 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 the reason that I brought it up is because you were like, oh, I wonder if it's like possible to be like in your early twenties and yeah. like, have this authentic persona. And like, it's like, I mean, there's literally this incredible test case because there's been a backlash because people have found out that he's, that he's got his name's Luke, you know. Like, and <laughs> so it's people... pretty soon he's going to be hosting the Great British Baking Show, no doubt. So Man, I can't he, wait. he's he's on the fucking like he's now like a national treasure, like for sure. Oh, he's like, probably going to be your next prime minister. Well, it, I mean, let's <laughs> strange things <laughs> happen. Um, but anyway, so you you mentioned earlier, I think you said something like, "Now that I'm not a journalist," yeah. which was interesting to me because I because obviously we've met on you know online we've never yep. actually met in real life but we've become nope. friends through um through instagram basically um because i was on your podcast the internet is real years. though my internet friends are my real friends it's fine. yeah well that's true that's true um <laughs> and so we i was on your podcast a couple of years ago and we've become yep. friends since and um but you know, to me, you the, I, we, I think we have a bit of a similar path, right? Like you, you skating, like board sports, and then journalism. Um, although yeah. you've you've done more sort of proper journalism, you know. As in, uh, like, I don't know that I would call it proper, but you know, I well, you cover uh, the ele- you cover the election, you know. I did, and that's when I quit journalism. <laughs> no, you know. I and and I say former journalist. I, I still write for people. Uh, it's less often. Um, Although I'm doing more, I've got some things in the works now. I'm doing more of it. Um, I think what I mean by that is, you know, I started, uh, I had a very ill-fated attempt at owning a company in the early 2000s that was just a one of the biggest disasters ever. And I, it's not even worth getting into, but um, no, no, I was, no, no, no. Whoa, 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 whoa. Yeah, yes. Yeah, no, we're not getting into that. <laughs> but, but then uh, I, you know, I really had to just, so... I guess if we want to go like, how did I get into journalism? Um, You know, I basically was a vagabond until I was like 27, Um, uh, you know, living, I had some odd jobs, like did some dumb stuff, uh, mostly sold drugs and was just like a piece of shit. Um, And really didn't imagine much more for myself. Uh, Didn't, I don't think I had the scope to imagine more for myself. Um, and then, uh, but like always I skateboarded and mountain biked and I, I always drew and I made some money selling artwork and I've always written since I was a kid. Um, and then I met my wife at a bus station in Eugene, Oregon at three o'clock in the morning. Uh, I got off to smoke a cigarette and she had just dropped someone off and bummed one off me, which is a great, uh, I think they call it a meat cute in the parlance of the yoke. Yeah. Um, and, uh, we went on a road trip together and, uh, Fast forward a year and we had a kid and I was like, well, it's time to figure out how to at least like hold a job, which I yeah. did. Um, but I, I had a, a rough time for the first five years or so separating, you know, the ethos of, of, a of a 
drug dealing vagabond, I guess, which is a romanticized way of saying kind of a scumbag uh, from from how to be a member of a society that I never really thought I'd be a member of. Um, and, you know, it's it is what it is. Um, did a lot of things that I'm probably not proud of, uh, some intentionally, some not. And um, and then, you know, I think there's an interesting perspective that a lot of young people who aren't on a traditional trajectory struggle with, um, which is a feeling of you don't really think about the future at all. It's all about whatever is right in front of you. And maybe that's very much like a generation X thing, which I'm, you know, squarely in the center of. Yeah. It's, too. yeah, it's kind of like what's, and for myself, I think I selfishly relegated that nihilism with, with, a, you know, an intense selfishness, but, but, uh, and self mythology, but, through the long run, um, also, also, sorry to interrupt you, but also like a very Gen X kind of trait, yeah. right? Oh, 100%. Yeah, yeah, you know, like, like, was... uh, just, 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 just to sort of stop on that point, though, like that, because I'm, I'm sorry, I've totally interrupted you, but I'm just, I'm just interested. Yeah, so, you know, like your, like how much of, how much of that was you sort of mytholog- mythologizing your own existence? Do you know what I mean? Like in, in, in the kind of Gen X way du jour, cause there was a bit of that, wasn't there? There was like, For sure. you know, like it was very much like culture, counterculture, you know, like if you think back yep. to like how influenced Gen X was by the sixties, which is such a fascinating thing to me now that I look, kind of look at it from distance. Like we did, we did sort of take our role models from that, dropping you know that 60s sort of dropping out like being out of establishment like being counterculture and when you well, even the when, movies like heathers and and all you know, store, those were, i just i just thought yeah. of drugstore cowboy when you were talking my brother about, and i you know. used to joke that we would wear you know we used to wear trench coats to high school in a time when you could do that without being you know but but whatever. that was that, so that you, but, you know what i'm getting at though so how much yeah, yeah 100 how much of that was that um i would say a great deal of it you know i was i was a nerdy kid who was into like dungeons and dragons um my brother got me into skateboarding at 13 but also like i read a lot you know um i i was that super dorky kid who was reading at like a college level in fifth grade and just like obsessively consumed books i still read a lot but but back then it was like an obsession you know we didn't have a tv growing up um didn't have video games until you know my sophomore year in high school so like that was that was kind of what i was into i made zines um without really knowing that they were zines at the time um and i just read obsessively everything i could get my hands on so i think because of being in my own head so much you know you do you can't help but self-mythologize there um and we lacked you know finding pieces of counterculture and, and this has been talked to death and romanticized to death like we would get a thrasher magazine or a maximum rock and roll which is like a u.s punk rock magazine that you could get at like walden books which is also now gone um or borders or whatever. Uh, and, um, that was like finding, you know, a diamond in the middle of, of a pile of sawdust. You were like, it, it, you couldn't go online because it didn't exist. Like, or not in a way that, you know, was functional and accessible to the everyday person. Like you couldn't just go on and be like, now I'm an expert in this subculture. You had to like get all these bits and pieces and you had to like, even like going to shows in Boston, there were like gatekeepers that you had to get through. You know, um, and I, it, it's not a pity party story. I just was never like cool enough to really make it past those gatekeepers. So I think yeah. that caused like a reverse, 
like mythologizing effect where like you build yourself up more and more in your own mind. Um, yeah. And unfortunately as someone who didn't have a tradition, you know, I didn't go to college. Um, I lived in a college dorm for a year, but I didn't go there. Um, I, uh, drew influence from the people around me on how to be a human. And unfortunately, most of the people around me at that age were like straight up junkies. So, yeah, right. you know, while I was never, um, a drug addict, I definitely took a lot of my like early life lessons and like learning curve to adapting to life from those people, which, yeah, uh, you get, you gave it a good go. <laughs> I, I did. I tried, but, uh, but you know, you got- so through all that, like started to try to become a successful human failed very miserably. And then realized, you know, you have this moment when you're like 30 something where you're like early thirties, you're like, fuck, I got to, it's, it's put up or shut up time. You know what I mean? Yeah, like well, I've got a, if you've got, especially if you've got a kid, you got a kid, you know, I've got a, a, a partner, wife, like I need to get two dogs, you know, well, depending on me, I got to figure this out. And so I realized that while I'm a good salesman, I didn't want to sell things, um, you know, legally or otherwise. So I convinced the editor in chief of a local newspaper on Cape Cod to launch an alt weekly style paper and let me run it. I still, to this day, don't know how the hell I did that or why he agreed to let this random dude who walked into his office and said, you should start a separate news. Like don't know how it happened, but it did. Um, what year which, was that? I'm really bad at time, but I would say 2005 or six. That's great. Um, yeah. So proper, then, hustle. proper hustle. Proper hustle. That lasted for a year. And then uh, we had a bunch of disagreements and they wanted to do about how it should go. And, and basically, um, I've always had a obnoxiously rabid entrepreneurial streak, which I think boils back down to that self-mythologizing and, and ego. But uh, I was like, I can do this better on my own. And so that started a series of three different you know, alt weeklies or magazines based around Cape Cod of varying success. Uh, the last one of which uh, I sold um, or parted with, I sold it for a little bit of money uh, because in the process of doing that first paper, uh, something that, that really changed, like, you know, you have those moments that like really change your life and it's hard to pin them down sometimes, but this was like, this was very much like something literally just clicked into place, which is we were a staff of one, but we were part of a larger newspaper um, and we needed photos for a story. Um, and, I, you know, I had, I had always kind of laughed at photographers. I was like, oh, they just pointed it and take a picture. It's easy. You know, I fancied myself and, as like a Bill Waters and, 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 and the twats with it. <laughs> yeah. hundred percent. Like just never, I just, it was never something that even remotely interested me. Any photographers um, listening, you know I'm right. Oh, I mean, as someone who has since made it, made made his career as a photographer, um, believe me, we're the biggest bunch of swats. But uh, <laughs> no, so um, and I say like say that with pride. But uh, basically, I was like, I need, well, I need, I need photos, and they're like, here's a camera. I'm like, great, super annoyed. Went down, shot a couple photos of of. I think it was a flooded dock. Like it was, you know, nothing romantic came back and the editor was like, Oh, these are pretty good. And I was like, cool. Like, great. Uh, and he's like, do you, want... and I think, you know, he must've seen something in that because he kept asking me to shoot photos. Um, right. And I was like, sure. 
uh, and next thing you know, I something somewhere within a couple weeks of that, and I realized that you could use that as a storytelling tool that went in a non-traditional way, right? Like it didn't have to just be like, you know, the mayor and someone shaking hands, like holding a plaque, like that type of photojournalism didn't interest me at all. So, um, but telling that story from a different perspective, like a skewed perspective always did. So I started looking at like different angles and it suddenly like sparked like a creative, you know, node in me where I was like, oh, this is actually really interesting. And of course I had no knowledge of photography. So I thought, you know, in my head, I'm like, I'm, you know, very unique and coming. And of course it wasn't, it was all just, you know, everything, especially in photography, everything's been done before, but um, I was excited about it and started running with it. And um, that led to, you know, within the next couple of years, it was very quick. Uh, I was photographing, you know, so my, I guess my writing career, I was writing for bigger and bigger publications as well as a freelancer. Um, and I don't remember who the first big stories were, but I mean, very quickly after like that all weekly started, I was pitching and writing for people like Rolling Stone and Esquire and Vice and, um, kind of all over the map there. Uh, and just started saying, Hey, I can shoot photos too. And of course they would rather just pay you for a story and get photos for free alongside it. I didn't realize at the time that I was in the process, like, helping bury the photography industry, but that's or the photojournalism industry, but you know, it's fine. So, uh, <laughs> <laughs> great, great. Um, so I started doing both and through that, um, got to shoot a bunch of different music events. I've always loved music. I've always been drawn to it. It's always been pretty central to my life and, um, got to kind of wiggle my way in with some bands that decided they liked me and kept using me. Um, and so I started getting access and, you know, with access, uh, took some lessons from that first part of my life where maybe I wasn't always humble or great or a person that people wanted to be around and just kept my fucking mouth shut and tried to be chill and, and not over the top and not annoying and not talking shit and, you know, just letting the in turns out people like that trait in people. Uh, so, um, got to do more and more, got to write more and more. And then, um, wound up getting a job after the second all week. So I worked for that paper after a year, I started my own and then started working for another local newspaper, just as like a staff reporter and photographer that lasted for about a year before, uh, something blew it up in my face. Um, and then uh, realized that I didn't want to be a local journalist. Um, I still believe, you know, all politics is local and, and local journalism is the most important journalism, but I had higher aspirations and, and frankly also recognized that I could write one story for Esquire and make more than I made in two weeks as a local journalist, or I could shoot one photo and have it published or, or sold to, um, Along this time, I was also starting to shoot outdoor stuff because that's what I was into. Um, so shooting friends, fly fishing, cycling and all that. And um, got to know, uh, did a book project with Patagonia with Jeff Johnson that really kind of boosted my connection level there. So I get to work with a lot more outdoor brands. And next thing you know, you know, it's I'm, I'm a 
freelance photographer and writer. <laughs> uh, and somehow through all of it, um, wound up for working for a year or so as a, um, a senior editor at Esquire magazine, and then a senior editor and senior correspondent uh, and video creative director, I think was my title at the end, at the Daily Beast, uh, which is where they sent me to the RNC and the DNC, which was very much outside of my uh, my beat purview, for sure. Um, yeah. And well, it's, the, uh, it's, the, it's the Hunter S. Thompson vibe, isn't it? It no. should have been, and I should have approached it like that. But instead, I, I you know, I'd never, I'd never, I, I identify as as a, a liberal, um, and I'm very much like a, I'm like an Earth First liberal. Like I'm very much obsessed with conservation and in the environment, and um, think that, you know, we really need to be focused on climate change right now, or we're all going to die, which is, I think, pretty self evident. And happy to argue with anyone who doesn't think so. Um, although you won't find me on Twitter after today, unfortunately. So I don't know where we're going to argue. Um, Substack, that's where it's all at. Substack. Well, you know, it's <laughs> funny you bring that up. Shameless self-promotion. Uh, I do have a Substack that uh, is like, I've been toying with for six months that that will eventually launch. Um, nice. Oh, well, I'll be <laughs> I'll be subscribing and recommending. Nice. Thank you. I um, do the same for you. Go ahead. I've, Sorry. Well, so two two things kind of struck me there. Um, so maybe ask this in two parts. First part is you said something like, um, "I've always been good at, good at sales," like, and that was part of like the self mythologizing things. But like you know that whole story that you just told clearly you're quite good at selling yourself because you know you've yeah. got you, you know you know you mentioned you mentioned the the guy that you persuaded to start the paper you mentioned like and you know what like the story that you told is, is kind of similar to mine in 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 not 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 literally but insofar as like seeing opportunities like following following little threads you know forging relationships kind of realizing opportunities are out there and thinking about how you can you know like and that and that is those are all necessary things for like the freelance life at the end of the day aren't yeah. they whatever you do yeah. you know like anyone and but you clearly don't lack confidence in, in <laughs> like in, in 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 that part of it like this so, so i guess well that, i think anyone know, who does what we do right like you're creating something and putting it out in the world so to say that you're an artist, a writer, a photographer, a podcaster, anything, there's no way to do that and identify with that and put that out there without ego. Because if you don't have the ego, like you're not going to be able to to output the work and put it out there. It's going to be like a Vivian Mayer thing. But even even there, like you have to believe that you're pursuing something in order to create creating the work. Yeah, so, well, I mean, that's the paradox of creativity, isn't it? I think that's why so yeah. many people struggle to get off the ground because they can't get past that bit. You know, they're like, no one's going to care what I think, you know, like, <laughs> and, and like you say, necessarily, you have to think that people will care or else you won't do it. And and yeah. if you're an introvert- <laughs> Or at least or, believe enough in in it that, that you don't, you believe that, that yeah. Yeah, and if you, definitely... and, and, and if it doesn't come naturally to you, for example, if you're an introvert or whatever, or like you're you're not comfortable talking about yourself, that bit's really hard. Like you know, yeah, and and you got to find a way of doing it. And because I remember like a friend of mine, sort of saying to me, like, "Wow, you're on social media." I don't know, like something like that. Like, and I was a bit like, "Well, it's kind of part of the deal," you know. Like you have to, 
selling it is as much a part of it as making it you know and if you 100%. don't if you don't if you don't like if you don't get on board with that like don't wonder why you're not getting it anywhere <laughs> with it because because like and that might be fine you know maybe you don't give a fuck maybe you're just going to do stuff for your own but it's 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 very necessary but in your case you that is intriguing that you said that's part of the self mythologizing because it almost suggests like you kind of told yourself you could do it like what what's going on there well i think you re- a you reach a point where it's like i i i know enough of myself to know that um i'm not you know gonna be happy um holding down like a normal job it's just not it's you know i'm the poster child for unmedicated adhd and i'm restless and fidgety and uh i just i i'm not the kind of person and and god bless the people who are who can sit and do the same thing over and over again or or it's just not it's not for me i need to keep moving and you know i've always had that restlessness and i've it doesn't curtail well and it doesn't lead to a good pattern of behavior. So I think when your back is against the wall and you have no other choices, you kind of like fake it till you make it. And I do think that's a big part of it. Um, and you know, you mentioned selling myself. Um, and, and I think that I, I am good at that, but I, that's harkens back to a youth of a reading a bunch of stories and loving stories. And then also, quite frankly, telling stories about myself um, that may or may not be true in an attempt to get, you know, the cool people to like me or, or to get into a certain situation, which, you know, isn't laudable for sure. But at a certain point, I think I had enough of a moment of clarity to recognize that I had the power of being able to tell stories and a love of stories and just thought like, okay, I can either figure out how to use this power for good and make it work for me and and hopefully make it work in a way that betters the world around me and, and maybe makes up for some of the dumb shit that I've done in my life. Um, or I can become a person who just like pushes widgets back and forth for the rest of his life, drinks himself to death, and is probably dead by 45. So I'm yeah, 47 makes, and thank God it's makes, working out. Makes total sense. Like I completely understand that because I think, again, I think when you're younger, God, I fucking cringe when I think back to some of the situations <laughs> that you're that you're talk that you're talking about. But but you just do it when you're a kid, don't you? You know, yeah. like you, oh. you, and, and like and like you said, like you said, like you learn, you learn. You, I don't think I even started learning till I was thirty-two. But yeah, but you were, ahead, but sorry. you said, oh, I kind of realized that you know people. It's better sometimes. It's better to be quiet and you know, like and, and observe than than be the. And I'd be lying if that. I didn't say I, I don't still struggle with that. But yes, well, it's, 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 it's an essential life lesson, isn't it? You know, the, bi- the biggest ass brays the loudest and all that. Um, <laughs> I am very loud. Wait, what are we saying? What are you saying about this? <laughs> oh, I gotta go. Um, Bad connection. But the other, but the other thing I was going to say is that, that struck me when you were talking about your career is it sounds like you're quite good at finding mentors, like or finding people that yeah. that, that can give you opportunities. Is that is that a fair comment? I think so. Um, I, I, it's a combination of, of that and of, you know, I, I feel very Freudian calling everything back to my childhood here now suddenly, but, but like, I've always been a person who has lots of wild ideas. Um, and I think, uh, I recently had to sum up for a, a group of photography people that I was doing a mentorship program with like what, 
um, what my career was like had become or what, it, what, what my secret was. And I think my secret is that I am a person who has a lot of wild ideas, but I'm also the one who's dumb enough to try to make them happen. And so the, the, the secret to my success has been having a crazy idea, convincing someone to do it with me and then convincing someone to pay us to do it. And you know, that, that has both worked for and against me, but, but a lot of the things, you know, I've done a ton of things, still do a ton of things, but the things that have been most successful have been some crazy idea, usually, you know, thought up sitting around a campfire shit face. I'm like, we should do this. And like, next thing, you know, like I've convinced some company to pay us to do it and we're trucking along. So, um, I, I don't know why, or how maybe it's, maybe it's contagious enthusiasm. I don't know how I convince people to do these things. Uh, maybe they're hoping that, uh, you know, they saw the story online where I, you know, ate 50 pieces of chicken nuggets and then threw up and they're like, Oh, if nothing else, we'll get something fucking funny out of this kid. But, um, you know, luckily I've been at some scale able to convince people to keep going along with this. And in my creative chops, you know, the more you do it, it's, it's, Malcolm Gladwell's 10,000 hours thing, right? Like the more you do it, the better you get. So the, the assets that you return become better and better. And then the people that you're around get better and better at it. And suddenly, you know, you're, you've got this group of friends who that's just what we do. You know, I look at all of the, my friend circle and none of us are quote unquote normal people. <laughs> so are you in a position now where you can kind of, pick and choose like like yeah like like the fat bike in winter <laughs> surf trick you invited me on <laughs> yeah you, you should have like, come that was I great know, I, sh- I, couldn't, um, I couldn't do it, it was the way at the time you were like so what we're gonna do is we're gonna go fat biking in 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 like the east coast in the winter and go surfing and in Maine. snowy yeah. and, it, and it'll yeah, be it was... really cold but it'll be really fun i was like fuck that sounds pretty fucking mental. that was a rad trip that was um so <laughs> I about thought we were going to kill Jeff Johnson on that one. He looked, there's some pictures where he looks really cold, but so yeah, I had a bunch of friends from California, uh, come out during one of the coldest stretches on record, um, polar vortex, I believe they called it, uh, to ride fat bikes and surf. Um, and it was, uh, you know, on beaches and it was, it was pretty rad. It was, uh, Jeff Johnson, Anna, now Anna Godowskis, um, uh, Eddie Donnellan and James Nixon. And it was, it was a lot of, and Nick Lavecchia uh, met us partway through and it was, it was a lot of fun. It wound up being a thing for specialized, uh, showcasing their fat bikes. And then it was a feature in, I want to say it was monster children did a story, but then we also like did something because I'm super slutty. Uh, we also like, <laughs> I shot a lot of it on film. So we did a whole thing with Kodak with it. Um, and you know, that's, that's, for anyone out there looking to have like a creative career, I think the number one thing to know is just build a Rolodex of like-minded companies and people that, and and that you get along with that you share ideas with and that you share passions and excitements and, and ethos is with, because, you know, there is that handful of brands that, that I just consistently work with, you know, not, you know, I'm not working with 25 different clothing brands or, or, you know, 15 different bike brands all over the place. And, and certainly there's a place for that, but it's the way it works best for me is to develop, you know, these, these long-term relations, like creative relationships. And, um, and that's, 
I think, I think that's the most important thing. Don't look at every project. as just like a one and done, you know, you want to, you want to keep building on those projects and that's how you get to bigger and better things. Well, it's a long game as well, isn't it? You know, those, those, relation, those relationships just take, they just take years, don't they? You know, like, and it starts, it starts pretty local as you've described. And then, and then you'll start doing more things and it'll just, it'll expand, but it does, it does take a while, yeah. doesn't it? It's yeah. And you know, we've reached, so we talked a lot about, or a little bit about, um, the RNC and the DNC. That was 2015. That was the, you know, the first coming of Trump. And I so realized for, for, very, for my, for my British listeners, that's the Republican Republican national Congress and the democratic national Congress, which is basically like convention. Yeah. Convention. Sorry, but that's like the, um, that's like when they fucking, the speech they announced their out. official candidate so yeah, yeah here in the u.s like the spring like, of an election partisan, cycle as partisan as it gets let's put it that way oh yeah i mean the rnc was in cleveland ohio and i drove there it was 12 hours or some stupid it was insane to drive there but i did and as you pull in there's like anti-abortion posters everywhere like you know open carry campaigns and i'm just like what the fuck is happening it was like an alex jones wet dream it was it was truly terrible and i was just like i i don't this is this is this is crazy, and and I've always been, like I said, I've always been a super liberal dude, pretty you know far lefty, and uh, environment is very important to me. Um, but I don't think that I had ever been politicized as heavily as I was during that election, and I think a lot of that comes from a seeing how in a, in an actual newsroom setting because the Daily Beast is very much a you know a real news place, seeing how the news is made. Um, seeing how those conversations happen that form what becomes a story, seeing how headlines are done, but then also being there, you know, with the security clearance or whatever to like be backstage at the RNC and kind of see how all of that happens. And then at the DNC, a couple of weeks later, um, realizing that that is quite frankly, not much, better. I mean, you know, I was there and they had Josh Fox and Bernie Sanders basically locked away so that they wouldn't cause any trouble. And it was just this crazy fucking, I was like, I don't even know how to explain it. It was like, it was like Rocky horror picture show in a way. Like it was just over the top campy craziness. And and I think that was a moment, like a breaking point for me where I realized like maybe none of these people and, and on any side, I think I was just feeling disheartened, you know, and yeah. kind of like, I don't know who the good guys are. Um, and I, I think it since became clear uh, that, you know, that that our system here in the United States is, is very broken. Um, but I, I didn't want to feel like I was contributing to that brokenness. And I also felt, you know, I was surrounded at the time by by fucking amazing journalists like Olivia Nussi and as I was saying, and like just Ben Collins, who's my editor and now is an NBC correspondent, like just like truly world-class journalists and realized that my little shtick of like eating chicken McNuggets or defending cargo shorts or like, you know, going on the road with modest mouse, like that didn't matter in that moment. And that I wasn't capable, you know, just a very real recognition that I was not capable of, of stepping up and operating at the level that they were at. Um, yeah. Not only was I, 
it's not even that I wasn't capable of it. It's that I didn't want to. I yeah. didn't have the heart for it. Um, I didn't have you the want to join nervous that system for it. By the sound I didn't want to join the circus, and, but they're doing noble work. I mean, the, the role of the journalist in today's society is more important than it's ever been and more maligned than I think it's ever been. And I just didn't have, um, I just didn't have the balls, quite frankly. And so, you know, I, I wanted to do environmental stories and, and did a few. And then really just, I think the I just left the Daily Beast and kind of didn't know what I wanted to do, but I knew that I wanted to do something to to better the world. Like, like I said, I feel as though I did a bunch of stupid shitty things in my youth and one, I owe it to the world and two, I owe it to my daughter um, to try to make the world a better place. And so I started trying to make sure that everything I did had an environmental bent to it um, and was already, a, I, I'm not sure if I was a member or like, was already doing things with 1% for the planet and that's kind of how that podcast, that's how we met is I, I pitched the podcast for 1% for the planet, started doing stuff with Protect Our Winters, um, started leaning into doing more um, outdoor focused creative stuff, both with bikes and fly fishing um, and some board sports stuff, but, but really doing it from an angle of showing people the magic of being outdoors in the hopes of inspiring them to get outside and away from the screens that make everything seem like it's the metaverse, not real, but also with the hope of getting them to care about like the fact that, you know, what's out there is quickly dying um, yeah. and taking us with it. And, and that, that really scares me. And at the time, you know, it was kind of, it's funny to look back even, you know, five years ago or six years ago that it seems like such a precious notion now, because if anything, um, I, I think the time for like, energizing people through pretty pictures and stories is, is quickly coming to an end and it needs to be more of a clarion call of like, I was going to, I mean, I was going to, I was going to make the point, you know, you could almost, the, the comparison that you drew with yourself and the, and the people in the political world that you, you know, you were like, well, I'm dabbling and they're actually doing serious work. Like, I mean, you could kind of make the same argument from the, in the conservation environmental sort of 100%. Realm, realm right you know there's like there's it's it, it it's quite serious i mean we're talking about yeah, it's put I mean, up I, or shut up time 100 yeah exactly you know like like yesterday the report came out i think from the un it's like actually we're, we're, we're almost at the irreversible point blah blah you know we all we all know this like but yeah it can't do you feel like do you feel like it feels though like it feels like your career has you know put bluntly is, is getting a you're getting more serious like you know like yeah. you you you're you're feeling like you need to use your platform for like I think I'm as, learning... as as effectively as you can and also final final point you know you you've mentioned a few times like perceived mistakes of your youth that are obviously I'm sound like a therapist here but like you know they're obviously <laughs> I mean, they're obviously they're what obviously is a podcast if it's not therapy but 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 they're obviously that's obviously something that you want to you know atone for somehow because you you've you've you mentioned it a few times now you've kind of yeah said like, well it, it weighs but also i don't think there's a way to look at the scope of of my life and career without acknowledging all that but also i do think it's funny i do think i get more and more serious about it and you know maybe that's just the course of a life right like you 
build this foundation of a career and you get better and better at it and you move for, you know, if you're an insurance, you become an upper manager. Or if you're a barista, you own a coffee shop or run a coffee shop. Like, I don't, I don't know. So in this non-traditional career that I have or that you have or that we have, like, what is, what, what is the end goal of that? Like, you know, we're not going to retire and get a gold watch and just go sit on our asses anymore because the world's fucking on fire. So, you know, I do feel as though I've forged a skill set, uh, a storytelling skill set, and a series of connections and a platform. Um, and, you know, my my day job at the moment, I'm the director of marketing for a winery. Uh, you know, that's that's seventy percent of my time right there. The other thirty professional time. The other thirty percent, I'm still writing and shooting and doing all that. Uh, you know, about to go out on tour with Modest Mouse again, um, but. But I think that we have to be conscious now of every decision we make, uh, making sure that it it's the best one that we every public facing decision that we make as people with a public platform, you know, is is the best one we can make as far as informing and sharing and bringing people along on this journey of you know, trying to stop. And this sounds so trite and, and alarmist, but trying to stop the fucking end of our civilization. I mean, like, it's one thing to joke about like, oh, like, yeah, the world's ending. The sky is like, the sky is literally fucking falling. Like, like this isn't, this isn't, you know, like partisan bullshit. This isn't alarmist, you know, extremist news. This isn't, you know, your crazy aunt on Facebook sharing, you know, somebody's peeing on Trump files. Like, like this is, this is real. You can see it outside your door. Like I'm sitting in the middle of Sonoma County right now and I can see a fucking scorched mountaintop from where I'm sitting, from where wildfires almost hit the town. Like, like it's real. And it's, if you can't recognize how real it is, then either your head's up your ass or you've got something to gain from it which is the case with most of these people, you know, you look at like in Oregon right now, they're about to potentially elect their first Republican governor in a long time. And it's because the timber industry is throwing fuck tons of money at it. And you're like, well, why is the timber industry doing like, she's a climate denier. And you're like, what? So how can the timber industry, which, you know, probably has a bunch of money and, and smart people behind it, deny climate. It's like, well, because money, money talks in today's world. And really the only way to reverse what's going on is to remember that every dollar or whatever your, your money type is spent is a vote. And every time you talk publicly, you know, you're, you're campaigning, whether you realize it or not. And that doesn't mean that every post that you make on social media needs to be like, the world is on fire. The world is ending. Like, quick, do something like recycle, but you need to be crafting a narrative that, that is, I feel I need to be crafting a narrative that inspires people to give a shit and wake up and look around and, and not be snowed by the partisan and the capitalistic, you know, dogma that's being pushed on everyone that really is whichever side of the aisle you're on is just blinders. You're just, you're just being kept in a state of constant frothiness so that you don't have that moment of clarity to recognize like the fucking house is on fire and you should, you should, you can't get out. So you should hurry up to put it out. I'm babbling yeah. at this point. No, you're not babbling <laughs> at all. I mean, I was just, I was just trying to think about, I mean, it, yeah, 
it we're not very good as a as a species of acting until it's very very late in the day though are we do you know what i mean no we're very good at we're very good at self-mythologizing and uh and believing in things that we can't tangibly prove but also disavowing the uncomfortable things that are right in front of us that are very real yeah Um, and i'm sure you you look at covid and and like when everyone was when no one really knew what it was and and like the world was pretty focused on that like you know early on when it was like well we really don't know what this thing is and we don't know how serious Mm -hmm. it is and then once it became apparent that it wasn't ebola or it wasn't smallpox but it's still serious because obviously people were dying, but like it was, it was much, you know, in comparison, you know, imagine if, imagine if like COVID, one of the um, side effects was that you were disfigured like smallpox. Yeah. It would have been a different fucking conversation. Like, <laughs> because, because suddenly everyone, everyone would have been like, fuck me. Okay. I don't want to get that, you know, so I'm going <laughs> to, and, yeah. and, but like, because it would have been, and it, so unfortunately that's kind of the deal is we look at that's actually a really interesting really interesting comparison i never thought about i never thought of it that way like if it if it hit us in the vanity then we would have acted that's that says something about and i think you're right that really says something about us as a species well but you know in a year later you got people arguing like well i'm not gonna wear a mask because fuck that you know like because that impinges on my personal liberty and all that stuff so i mean whatever you don't need to get into that but like ultimately people are very, very good at putting their own self-interest first until like they, there's no choice but to yeah. act, you know, like, and like, you know, if it had been a bowler where like, you're going to bleed out of every orifice and, and die within 12 hours. Like, and we all got think- to see some people do that in the streets, right? Like, I think, I think that's part of, part of where I, I think that's part of the pro- Like, so my wife is an ICU nurse. I saw every day, like, this the what covid was doing just etched on her face when she came home from work so there's no way for me to like to sugarcoat it you know what i mean it wasn't just something that was happening on the news and it it hadn't been hygienized or like you know and, and we're so you know as a person who tells visual stories i can i can say like we're so used to shocking images that the image of a pile of people covered in sheets on board, you know, a military transport vehicle outside of New York or, or whatever, like of people who've died from COVID, like it, it's not, it's shocking for a second. And then you just kind of go on with your day. And I, and I think some of that is our brain's own way of making, because making it okay to get through the day. Right. So if, if we, actually had to reckon with all of the horrors that are happening in the world. And because of technology, we're all confronted with every little thing that happens everywhere all the time, like the minute it happens. For us to look at that onslaught of horror and sadness and then like go get a fucking latte and, you know, like like your brain has to be able to compartmentalize that. And I think we've just become browbeaten and programmed to the point where we're desensitized, our brains are desensitizing any horror that comes along. Because, you know, it's it, it comes down to like the same thing with, with partisan, like everyone in the United States right now, like this country is a mess and it's very divided. 
But I really think that with the exception of some fucking douchebag Nazi proud boy, right? Like if you go to someone on the far right or the far left and you talk to them, like they're not generally going to be fucking hateful people who are like, fuck that. You should everyone. Nobody doesn't want everyone to be okay. Right. But we get whipped into this frenzy of fear where our lizard brain is like, I have to be okay first. My subset has to be okay first. My community, whatever, you know, community you mentally align with, like, has to be okay first. And I think that's what is being weaponized against us at the moment, because I think that at our core, most people, and I have to believe most people are not fucking terrible fascist pieces of shit, right? Like, like they're they're governed by a desire for them to be okay, for their loved ones to be okay, and then they want everyone to be okay. No one wants someone to suffer. And if they do, they're a fucking psychopath. Like that's that's just it. So, you know, if and, and this comes back to, you know, the soapbox that we're standing on, like if there's a way to pull to show images or tell stories that bring people a little bit further out of that psychological cave that they've been backed into then like it's our responsibility to do it you know and i'm not saying i know the perfect way to do that because if i did i'd I'd be doing it i think the problem is once you start getting good at that and you develop a following i don't know if it's ego or capitalism something takes over and and a suddenly you become a weird stereotype of yourself but then also everyone around you um who formerly was an ally sees that success and suddenly wants to take you down. And and I haven't personally experienced that, but I mean, you had a photographer guest on recently who's, you know, got a few million Instagram followers and people, when he, when that success first started happening for that dude, uh, yeah, people, yeah, he's a friend of yours, Chris, right? Chris, Chris Burkhard. Yeah. Can, I mean, he's say, a friend. We, we, we can say yeah. his name. I mean, I wouldn't say that we're really close friends, but, you know, but you, he, yeah, I consider you, you, him a friend. I've known him for years. Yeah, um, we've yeah. done some stuff together. You've we've, moved in similar we've, circles, right? We definitely move in similar circles. Um, I really like Chris. Uh, I think he's a fucking, I think he's a hard worker. Um, I think he's, I mean, his hustle makes me feel like, like a, like a tortoise. Like I, oh, it's just incredible. Same. Same. And, it, and his talent is, is incredible, um, both at sales and at, at photography. Yeah. Um, and he built that out of, out of nothing. And, but it's interesting and I'm probably guilty of this on some level because everyone loves to talk shit. Like when his success was really taking off and he got his first million Instagram followers, there was a lot of, instead of applause for his success, like even in our little, like admittedly, like whatever, like lefty self-congratulatory niche people, people started hating on him. And, and it's, it comes down to this weird clickiness and this weird, like sense of like high school cool guy where everyone wants everyone to succeed until they succeed too much. And then they want to tear them down. And I have to give Chris props because a lot of people, when they hit that level of success, it goes to their head. And, and I don't know, maybe it has gone to his head. I haven't talked to him in a while, but he seems real on point to me. And it seems like he's really trying to use that platform in a positive way. Um, more so than a lot of other people from our world who've achieved that level of success. And I, I think I mean, that's incredibly commendable. The hustle, like you say, I 
because I my a lot of friends say to me like God you you do so much stuff and like blah 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 and then I met I've met you know like, I've been looking up to interview like a lot of high achievers on this David Car <laughs> it, it kind of reminded me of like I said this in the intro, like David Carson, he sort of reminded me of, he reminded me a bit of Stacey Peralta, like just to, yeah. just, just to drive. Dude, Burkhardt you know? hustles more in one day than I do in five years. It is fucking incredible. Well, we, we did our thing in Stockholm. Yep. Like, yeah, I heard and, it. It's good. And, um, and then like he, we went for dinner. It was a Sunday. Me and Owen were like, cool, let's get some, let's go and have a beer, you know? Like, <laughs> he doesn't drink. And he he was like, um, like basically like, okay, well, I got a call with my media house. I got a call with all my staff, like yeah. you know, <laughs> and uh, and it's just it was just like, but you know, he also gave a really good explanation of how he kind of mitigates that as well. Like so, but yeah, I was the same. I was I was, I mean, even I, on a bike, I, like like, <laughs> like impressed, should I say, with with as that. a fellow cyclist and a fellow bike packer, even on a bike, that dude excels he's like i'm like we're gonna go right across vermont he's like i'm gonna go circumnavigate fucking iceland you're like cool like i it's, well, the, it's, day, the day it's the day amazing. we did the day we did the thing he'd done like a 200k bike race the day before like yeah to he's to test, he's to, superhuman shout yeah. out chris burkhardt for sure um yeah but back to back to the um i mean we're talking we're talking about human nature aren't we you we know, sure talk, are we're talking I mean, about like and and that so to bring it back to what you're talking about like how can you make a dent in that with with your work like how can you because obviously you know, you're, you're, you're you're driven to clearly to to sort of compelled to sort of use your skill set and platform to 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 try and affect this conversation but well i mean and maybe that's ego right like because it would be i mean the easy move here would be to take my fairly cushy marketing job at a winery uh, do that and then like sell prints on the side and live a very comfortable existence. But that, you know, maybe it's the ADHD. Like I'm just never, never really content for long and also do feel a real responsibility maybe as a father and seeing my daughter and her generation uh, and my friends and their kids like to, to not, to, to just try to make the world not die, not burn. You know, it's, it's really, it's an all hands on deck moment, you know, talking about how people there's something like a billion photos posted online a day or something like that now. And that's, that's really interesting to me. I, I have older photographer friends. Uh, and I actually said this on the Kodak podcast a couple of years ago, where I actually love the iPhone and the proliferation of, of like getting a good camera in the hands, a good easy use camera in the hands of like everyone on earth, because the democratization of photography, I think is going to be one of the things that allows us collectively to, to see the world as like one community. Um, and, and that removal of, of gatekeepers and gatekeeping, like the removal of like needing this arcane knowledge to like, to share your visual image or your visual vision you know what i'm trying to say yeah um, i mean that like, i think one it's of the, really one of, one, of, one of the great things about digital culture obviously like you know you met you alluded earlier to like the death of journalism and photojournalism like clearly that's that's a negative aspect to it but the, the democratization of creativity 
by by these by these tools is 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 I can I think it's a positive thing personally. I think it's wonderful. And you know, there is a death of photojournalism, but there's also a kind of a rebirth of photojournalism. There's a death of the of traditional the traditional yeah. professional photographer model, which is like I go and shoot photos for insert brand or outlet. They pay me for my time and then they license the photos. Then I develop this body of work that I sell for a high volume, like high money to now it's like you get paid less and they own images right out of the gate. Um, you know, as you move your career along, like you, you get more and more influence of that. Like I usually co-own my images with people. Um, but I think that might be ruining some careers or some people's perspective of a career but it's also opening up the world in a lot of ways to, you know, there could be some kid in a third world country right now with an iPhone six who like found that thing. It's not even connected to the internet, but he's using it to take photos who never would have had the fucking chance to show his photography. And in five years could be David Gutenfelder or Chris Burkhardt. And like, that is so exciting and so fucking cool to me that that's an opportunity that never existed. And if that means that like, you know, there's this old guard of, of you know weird old photographers with black rooms who are pissed like or dark rooms who are pissed like i'm sorry but that's that's a trade i'll make you know yeah, like that's, well look, look, look progress at your story hurts. look at your story yeah. you had to persuade a guy to like let you do a, <laughs> yeah. do a thing early on i mean that's the difference isn't it you yeah know, otherwise you... i would be the third most creative manager of a dunkin donuts somewhere in massachusetts well same same with me though like had to had to basically get get permission off people to to do the thing that I wanted to do not and that there's anything wrong with managing a dunkin donuts by the way the lord's work let me tell you good good donuts <laughs> yeah. Yeah. oh dude good i mean i don't know if they're good or not but but as, again is they do i mean new they, they, do their, they do their job as a new englander is... i can tell you that their coffee is actually like it's a it's a cultural heritage thing for me <laughs> <laughs> if i don't get like five or six of them a year i think i'll die um but uh and and people can can at me on social media to tell me how terrible my taste in coffee is you're right i i, I accept it and um, people get very exercised about indeed <laughs> let me tell you um i do wish it was fair trade but at least they're not using styrofoam anymore so uh so yeah i don't i i think back to like this responsibility thing i think any creative person has a responsibility if you're going to put yourself out there right at first, the responsibility to the community of the world at large is minimal. Like your responsibility is to yourself and to try to survive. And But once you reach a certain comfort level with your career and you achieve a certain platform and a certain level of, of respect and authority, there is, I believe, an inherent responsibility uh, to, to try to wield that platform for good. And you can say like, I'm just an artist. I, it's all apolitical. I don't think that's true. I don't think there's any art that is apolitical in, in this world. Now that doesn't mean that you're like, I'm a fascist or I'm a lefty or I'm whatever, but it, it means that you have a responsibility with that platform to try to guide the world in a, in a better way. Unfortunately, and I, I'm thinking as I talk here, cause that's how I think, uh, is, you know, what I think is guiding the world to a better place and what other people think might be very different. Um, yeah. I mean, politics is just a point of view at the end of the day. Like, oh, 100%. You know, I mean, at like, this point, it's just power, power mongering, unfortunately. But there's a there's an Orwell quote that 
that is like even the view that politics sorry even the view that art shouldn't be political is itself a political viewpoint 100 like, percent. i mean it's yeah. it doesn't like by by stating an opinion you are basically having a political opinion and like, i would say this fact. aimed at like this like anti-politically correct like free speech movement thing that's going on especially online where everyone's like you know oh i'm just a you know comedian or podcaster I, I don't have an opinion blah 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 like i think that just by what would you go there you are i think that um sorry i disconnected for a second or something i think that just by saying that you are making a statement but also like fuck you if you think you don't have that responsibility you know what I mean? Like, like that's, if you don't accept the fact that with this power that you wield culturally comes some level of responsibility, then you don't deserve to have that power. It's my opinion. I, 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 I completely agree. I completely agree. Um, so we're segue, segue moment, okay. but uh, I, think, I think we're going to, I think we're going to come over anyway. Um, we try to do, um, Oh, no way. Two um I i'll mean, drive actually owen wants to do volume two i just want to come to california and do a few more podcasts but owen um owen, i'll owen pick you the... up at the airport and drive you around in my fancy new subaru oh owen, owen's like we should do another book fuck I'm yeah like, you yeah. should maybe the scars have healed enough but yeah we're going to try and get over in <laughs> in spring and do uh i'm thinking like la to san francisco this time which would which would work nicely wouldn't it could come and see you and hang out i think you should do uh la to seattle but that's just my opinion yeah i mean he's got a he's got a one-year-old daughter so he's gonna uh yeah he's gonna be away for too long 100 percent. yeah i think i think we might i think a week to 10 days might be our our max really um so yeah maybe we'll finally get to meet that would be amazing um I, you, I thought i thought you were going to come over at one point because you mentioned the so, modest mouse yeah thing. i was supposed to come over last summer so um we keep alluding to modest mouse i my one of my best friends is the singer for modest i mean everyone in the band is, is a dear friend uh through the course of working like my career i've gotten to be close to some of the people that i work with um and keep working with them over and over again and chief among them is modest mouse the band um and so last summer they did a european tour that i was i'm usually on tour with them um last summer they did a european tour i was supposed to go with them but uh at the last minute had to cancel because i had taken this new job and quite frankly it just required there's too much front loading of work for me to be able to go to europe and fuck off for a month uh which is you know a regret but also um was necessary for my job and my family and, and my life. So uh, I wish I had made it. I've never been to England dying to go. Um, oh man. Sure that well, let's, yeah, let's make that happen. So does this mean you've met Johnny Ma? Uh, no. So Johnny is no longer in modest mouse. Um, I did. There's a lot of crossover there. So this last tour that, that we did, um, he left modest mouse to join another band called the cribs. Um, the Crypt is the opening band for this last tour. And actually, Johnny was either rehearsing or staging at the Modest Mouse studio right before their tour. But I have not met him. No, I uh, think you're nice would, things, though. I would uh, I would be pretty starstruck, I think, if I met Johnny. Mark. I think you should get him on the podcast. <laughs> well, he runs marathons, apparently. So that might be the way in. I'm pretty um, sure we can get him for you if you want him. I, I know uh, some people. I mean, know some people. He's he's. Uh, <laughs> I mean, the, Smiths, the Smiths 
for me, uh, I mean, Morrissey, obviously problematic, but <laughs> I, I uh, yeah, I think they're the greatest British band of the last sort of 40 years, like without doubt. So yeah, um, no argument from me there. Um, they're, they're pretty amazing. And again, I, I don't know him personally, but I know I have a lot of close friends who are close with him and I can, from what I understand, he's an absolute fucking gem of a human. So yeah, that's nice. Um, nice, nice to know. Nice to know. Yeah, maybe we'll get him. On, I'm gonna, I'm gonna get him on the podcast for you, and then you'll owe me a beer when you come over. <laughs> yeah, well, I'm definitely. Well, you know, I think it's gonna happen. So we, it will be great to meet you. But thanks very much That'd for doing this. We finally, yeah, man. Thanks for having me on. We finally Hopefully I didn't ramble too much. I know it's amazing. Um, and and like I like I've been very transparent about the main reason that I wanted to do this is so that I can write things for your uh, your newsletter. So yeah, now, please, man, please, now, please do. Now I get let's, to write for it. Yeah, let's um, do it. What do you want to my, write? My favorite newsletter. Um, I don't know. I've got some ideas. I'll send you some pitches. Yeah, man. Um, I have this. I actually have this. Uh, so also one other thing, uh, my buddy, Ethan Stewart, uh, he's the editor of a magazine called Bomb Snow out here. Uh, yeah. Lifelong surfer. I don't know if you know, Ethan. Um, he's I his know story the is incredible. Yeah, you got to have him on, man. His story is the most fucking incredible story. Uh, Jeff Johnson, I know, listens to this and is a former guest. He'll back me up on this. He's, we're both dear friends with Ethan. You got to get okay, Ethan on cool. this podcast. Where does he live? Guys, he lives in Montana. Okay. Yeah, um, not quite on the way from LA to San Francisco. No, we'd have, you probably have to do it digitally. But man, I tell you what, that guy, that guy's amazing. But, uh, okay. but that's yeah. A great, um, that's a great recommendation. I'll send you some pitches for the, uh, some proper pitches for the newsletter. Yeah, man. All about that. So there you go. That was me and James Joyner and I hope you enjoyed it. Big up James for taking the time to do that and for the brilliantly entertaining conversation. I told you that one went all over the place and it really did, eh? Um, and if you've yet to investigate Francis Bourgeois and if you don't know what train spotting is, then I envy you. What are you waiting for? Go and have a look. So housekeeping corner. We're here again. And one of the things I really love about the podcast, which I explained in the Looking Sideways Start Here newsletter I sent out the other week, is the community that's developed around the show. The people, you know, the thousand fans thing, although I did read something the other day, which is that it's not even about a thousand true fans anymore. It's about a hundred true fans. Jesus. Um, boiling it down even further down the end of the long tail slash niche. Anyway, um, I'm talking about the people that are listening to this, the people that humor me when I say thank fuck they've gone, that cheerlead the show, that share it, that generally get on about. Maybe they bought the book, you know, maybe they bought the money where the mouth is and, and enabled me to keep it free and ad free. And I do appreciate it. I mean, I know my take on this thing isn't for everybody, as I'm reminded fairly frequently on Instagram. But if you're still here listening and supporting the show, then I do appreciate it. The podcasting landscape, I think it's fair to say, has changed remarkably in the six years since I started doing this. There's a lot of them for a start and there's a lot of competition. So I don't take for granted the fact I've still got this real loyal audience. And I was reminded of this the other day over at Instagram where you can find me at We Look Sideways when somebody posted a picture of one of the book recommendations I put up from time to time. Basically, if you don't follow me on Instagram, like a total geek, I keep track of every book I read on my stories, which I then save as a highlight on my profile. Not at a vintage reading year this year, I must say. It's been a struggle, but I have got through a few. So you can find it at We Look Sideways, go to my profile, highlights. I think it's called 22 Reading List or something. And 
I'm always really chuffed when people get in touch to say they've read and enjoyed a book I recommend, although I am expecting some hate mail from the scores of people who appear to have bought The Rise and Fall of the Third Reich on the back of mine and Stacey Peralta's enthusiastic chat about that book. I mean, I stand by it. I loved it. I've even read it twice. Um, true story. But it is a long, long book and a real commitment. So let me know you get on with that. Anyway, like I say, I post. I saw this thing that someone tagged me in, so I reshared it on my stories. And I said something like, I should really start a book club where people can discuss this type of thing. And the response to that was, may I say, unexpected. Seems like there's a bit of an interest in such a thing. Um, and I'm guessing if you're the type of looking sideways diehard who's still listening at this point, then that might also be you. So book club, I mean, how to do it differently and interestingly is the challenge. Um, and at the minute, I'm thinking it could be a good idea to do it as an add-on to the paid subscriptions that I'm going to be setting up pretty soon. Um, well, I mean, I am going to set it up and it'll be done through Substack. But what I'm trying to work out at the minute is what you get if you sign up. I mean, I was, I sort of was headhunted. I mean, that's overstating it. But I was asked to go on this Substack course this summer. It's like, you're one of our um, up-and-coming writers. Please come and do this course. I mean, what I say about Substack, obviously, I talk about it quite a lot. And they are fucking good at marketing um and one of the you know what they do is they've essentially targeted famous writers there's a lot of them on there now like for example they just started posting george orwell's down and out in paris and london and made a big brouhaha about that but you know they got a lot of quite well-known journalists and writers to get on there and they're obviously paying them to kind of hype it up and they do and then they, there's, there's degrees to that and one of the things that they do is this thing called substack grow and I got invited to go on that. And basically what they try to do is encourage you to turn on paid subscriptions because that's how they get the money. And um, they do it in a nice way. They do it in a, you know, an elegant way, as you might expect from Substack. Well, that's kind of what they're doing. But I mean, I'm going to be honest, it is of some interest to me this because as regular listeners to know, my um, ongoing battle with ways of monetizing this thing is a long running theme of the podcast. And I'm currently thinking to get back to the point that I might turn on paid subscriptions on here um and one of the things somebody said on substack grow because everyone was talking about well how do you make it worthwhile and somebody that had turned on paid subscriptions is like i don't even really do anything basically i just do the same thing and what i realized is people they just want a way of supporting what you do if they're into it and a couple of quid a month is seen as like quite a decent investment from people so but you know I'm, i still think you gotta you gotta give people more than that personally so i'm kind of at the minute mulling over what i should include i'm thinking like exclusive episodes um you know do i put a housekeeping corner behind the paywall do i do live chats between me and guests that are only available to subscribers um you know do i do competitions that are only available to, to subscribers blah 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 and and you know is this an interesting idea it could be um but anyway you know if you've got any ideas on how to make a book club interesting or this um, thing I'm talking about with paid subscriptions, let me know. I'd love to hear about it. You can leave a comment on the Substack page, lookingsideways.substack.com or over at Instagram at we look sideways. Um, and let's have a chat. All right, that's it for this week. It's Saturday after Sunday afternoon here. The clock's just changed and that Sunday evening on we is kicking in. Um, I'm sure you all know what I'm on about. The Sunday night fear. So I might take the dog for a walk. And go for a sneaky pint. Um, have a great week and I'll see you next time. Nice one.